should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program hope you had a great Labor Day weekend. I know many people do uh, things like go away with their families, barbecue, and all that good stuff. But at the same time, the holiday has a lot of significant meaning, and I think that it has a great deal of meaning now during this politically challenging time. Um, I, I, there are a lot of discussions that are happening out there, and I can't decide if it's because I'm a little older now, or uh, it's the fact that I have so many different identities and a lot of these social issues impact me now, or, you know, if it's, it's truly because we've elected a president that is unpopular in a lot of ways um, to the American people, uh, whether based off of his decisions or his inexperience, even his tantrums or his Twitter handle, all of it has become dinner time discussion and I think that uh, it's deserving of what we're going to talk about in the show when it comes to identity politics. How do we define ourselves? How do we feel individually about what's happening politically? And how has our, you know, how have our experiences as individuals, how does, how has that really impacted politics at least in the last decade? So we're going to take some time with this program to speak to a special guest. Let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. So I mentioned identity politics. Is it destroying the Democratic Party? Both right-wing wingbats and even liberals are saying this, such as Steve Bannon, who's the former chief strategist to President Trump and now back as the executive chairman of Breitbart, uh, but he, uh, he, you know, this is this is a quote from him. The Democrats, he told the American Prospects, Bob Kuttner, the longer they talk about identity politics, I got them. I want them to talk about racism every day. If the left is focused on race and identity and we go with economic nationalism, we can crush the Democrats. And then there's, you know, progressive Bernie Sanders, who basically told the Democratic Party to move beyond identity politics and that we needed to focus on national issues that impact us as a whole. So let's talk about this with our special guests, as I mentioned. Mark Lilla 
He's an American political scientist, a historian of ideas, journalist, and professor of humanities at Columbia University in New York City. He does consider himself a Democrat and liberal, and he has a new book out, The Once and Future, Future Liberal. So let's talk about identity politics with Mark Lilla. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Michelle. So let's talk about identity politics. Some people who are tuning in for the first time might be asking, well, what the heck is that? So what is identity politics to you? Well, uh, to me, uh, there have been two kinds of identity politics, um, a kind of politics that grew up in um, from the 1950s to the 1970s, and those were <clears throat> social movements that were about uh, addressing the denial of rights to uh, various groups, uh, and uh, whether it was African-Americans, whether it was women, whether it was gays and lesbians. And uh, that phase of identity politics, in my mind, was not so much about identity. People didn't talk as much about their identities, but rather it was about enfranchising everyone as citizens. So the narrative, so to speak, was we're one na- we ought to be one nation. We say we're one nation. We say we're equal citizens, but in fact... Uh, we're not living up to that because these people have been excluded. Now, the second phase of identity politics, which is what we're living in now, and here the focus uh, is less on uh, incorporation into a great democratic we, but it's about questioning whether there is a democratic we, and throwing throwing doubts on that, and um, breaking into smaller and smaller groups, uh, making claims, rival claims, and also um, a, a, a kind of a fascination with the individual self. I mean, I have to say, the way you uh, introduced me, you said you discovered that you have so many identities that um, uh, our experiences as individuals affects us when we go into politics, that kind of focus, and there's something to it, um, mm-hmm. to my mind, has shifted the attention of the left from developing a vision of where we want to take the entire country, a vision that will attract people who don't belong to our groups and who can see themselves in that vision. Because if there's one thing uh, my book wants to drive home, it's that you can't do anything for anyone if you don't hold institutional power. Mm. That um, anything accomplished through movement politics can be undone in an afternoon by a governor, by a mayor, by a state legislature. And if we are not out there with a message that reaches the whole country we cannot guarantee the rights of women to have an abortion, for example, or gay and lesbian couples to walk down the street holding hands, or African-American motorists to drive without fear, that our first priority must be capturing institutional uh, power, and that means taking the focus off of ourselves as individuals and focusing on the common good. I totally understand, you know, the... Uh the idea of capturing institutional power. I mean, this is what the country is built upon. But it, in a lot of ways, and it's factual, you know, the, the institutionalized power um, 
is also built on racism. And so I wanted to ask this idea or this this thought to you that I had while reading your book, The Once and Future Liberal. It's not like the Democratic Party or liberals have uh, have not been able to sit in positions of power as as far as institutional power goes. What about the idea that maybe it's not identity politics that's the problem, but the problem is that the Democratic Party failed its followers. So, for example, you know, every campaign, sure, liberal voters who who drink the Kool-Aid that uh, some some candidates have campaigned on identity politics to pull in voters will faithfully vote Democrat but only be let down. And, and you know, one thing that made a lot of sense in your book was uh, – was calling out the fracturing of loyalty in our own party as far as Democrats because the mm-hmm. Democratic Party had moved closer and closer to conservative economic, uh, you know, views. So I wanted to ask you what you thought of, you know, if, if I made a statement like that. Oh, I think you're right. I think there has been a failure to deliver um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, you only are able to uh, start accomplishing something, actually accomplishing something if you're holding on to power. And we're so focused on the presidency that we forget that um, liberals and the left have been losing power at the state and local government continuously since 1980. And that during the Obama administration, we lost uh, nearly 1,000 state legislative seats. Uh, there are the Republicans control two thirds of our governorships, two thirds of our state legislatures. They control 24 states outright, and if they win one or two more state legislatures, they could call a constitutional convention. They could call a constitutional convention and change the law on abortion. Now that is the crisis of our time. That there are large parts of the country where people will not even open the door to listen to us. Now, there may be all sorts of reasons for that, our failures to, um, to provide, uh, you know, the kind of economic protections they need, that's going from that, uh, talking during the campaign. But if we're going to get in the door, even with an economic program, we need to talk about what we share as a nation so they see themselves in the message. And if we're constantly checking each other's privilege, making sure that different groups are being mentioned, then we don't get in the door. That's just a fact of our lives. I wish it weren't true, but it's true. Hmm. And that now that's not to say that, see, the problem is, and I wish I'd, you know, emphasize this more in the book, you know, to be clearer because it keeps coming up, is that in order to understand any social problem in America right now, we need to understand identity, which means we have to talk about identity. Right? If we're going to talk about incarceration in this country, we have to talk about race. If we are going to talk about uh, health care, we need to talk about how it affects women that we're trying to work and so on, right? So we need to talk about identity just to understand what we want to fight for. But the moment we got that straight, we have to go out and realize we're speaking to people who don't agree with us, are uh, skeptical, uh, uh, might not have made up their minds, and they don't speak the way we do. Mm-hmm. And if you don't persuade them, you cannot protect any person you care about. I, I totally get you on the language and the choice of, of you know, vernacular um, as far as talking about these issues. And not everybody's going to get it, especially if you start slicing and dicing 
uh, and looking at it from um, differences of, of ethnic background, gender identity, sexual orientation, class, education level, uh, these, the, what we're trying to say, if it is meant to unify folks, will, will not unify folks because not everybody's going to understand it. So my next you know, question to you as we talk about um, having to, you know, yes, there is a need to talk about identity, but looking for a, a way, a strategy to go in for the win. Uh, you know, the way that we talk about it, the way that we talk about power, it, there's some kind of assumption that, that uh, those who will get to positions of power usually are, you know, white and male. So I wanted to ask you, you know, um, and you're not the first person who has said this, we got to go in for the win. I mean, Bernie Sanders said it. And a lot, right. yeah, right. Uh, but how do we get people of color, LGBT, marginalized and oppressed groups to, to get into positions of power. That's really difficult to do um, to break the white male hegemony that you know currently are still in existence as a power structure in this country. Well, if you talk to Democratic org- organizers, they are crying out for candidates. They will encourage anyone from these groups. It's simply not the case on the Democratic side. Um, it, does the name Danica Rome mean anything to you? I'm sorry, say that again? The name Danica Rome. She is a transgender candidate for uh, the state legislature in Virginia. There's been a bunch of articles written about her. I don't know if you know about her. Um, but, but tell us. Yeah, well, you, you actually should have her on the show. She sounds great. She's 32 year, years old. She is the first openly transgender candidate to win a state primary in Virginia. And so now she's going up against a Republican who has crawled out of some rock. His name is, name, his name is Marshall. Uh, he, he talked about nothing but gender and identity for his own purposes. And so he questions the intelligence of women who, learn, uh, who use long-term contraception. He says incest is voluntary. Uh, he's pushing to get uh, transgender people out of the military. And her strategy in fighting him is to not talk about that. Hmm. She, she won't be baited. And so I've got an article in the Washington Post about her, and she's asked by the reporters, well, what do you talk about? She said traffic, jobs, schools, in that order. And equality, of course, I put equality there because this race will be different. Now, you know, she, she's a news reporter. She lives in the area. She's got a boyfriend. She belongs to a, uh, you know, a heavy metal band or something. And she knows that that in order to just have her side win, and her side is not just the transgender LGBT community, it's the Democratic side, she's got to go out there. And the reporter asked her, um, is anyone talking about the transgender ban to you? And she said, no, not really, maybe one person, power lines. People really want to talk about power lines, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how local politics happens. So if you go into politics thinking that everything you yourself think everything is about identity, you're not going to see your opportunity. You know, the party is open now. Go run for local office and talk about these sorts of things. Once we hold the state house, then we can talk about how to use our power to help these groups. But if you don't win first, it's nothing but talk. Hmm. 
to piggyback on that, um, you know, you make an interesting point in the book in which you talk about or point out um, how liberals have gotten good at using the court systems to achieve rights for groups like LGBT. And so a great example of that is marriage equality. While, uh, you know, the public, uh, I guess, support might not have been there. California is a great example of this, right? We had a bill, Proposition 8, in which the the people voted on this potential ban of same-sex marriage. Um, LGBT rights groups were able to challenge that in court, and now, you know, we have what we have. We have marriage equality. And your argument is that if we we don't work with public opinion or public interest first— we're, we're always going to be at this situation of, uh, of failing from the very, very top or not winning at the local level, as you said, and that, that presents a, a problem. Can you elaborate on that? Well, to begin with, you can do a lot more uh, about any of these issues once you're already in power, right? And then you can educate the public. But look, there, there's still room for a social movement to work on these sorts of things. There's still room for court cases and all of that. What I'm trying to say is that because that's been the exclusive focus of so much of liberal politics ever since really the McGovern campaign, that uh, what people aren't seeing is that they're standing on a coastal shelf that is just dropping into the sea. And pretty soon you're going to be talking to no one. And so, you know, the, the way we got marriage equality, wasn't just that we were in the courts, is that public opinion changed. You know, people started seeing gay characters on television. Uh, you know, um, probably Sesame Street did a lot for race relations in this country. A television show called Murphy Brown that showed the first single woman with uh, a single mother. Um, you know, there's lots of ways in which we work on ourselves, and we work on hearts and minds in this country. And it's a very delicate operation. Uh, you don't convince people by going up to them, to their faces, and telling them they're racist and misogynist. Uh, but slowly you can transform, you know, public opinion. But, again, job one has to be holding political power for that stuff to have an effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I saw, you know, the win for marriage equality, not from a singular perspective of winning at the court system. That was a big, huge part of it, but, but a, a good chunk of it also was the fact that when people really started seeing uh, people of, of, you know, power— judges and, and hearing the arguments and and also politicians, legis, uh, legislators, you know, powerful people start to evolve in their, you know, position and their decision and also start to argue this case. I mean, remember uh, for Prop 8, uh, the, uh, the lawyers who argued against banning same-sex marriage were actually uh, one conservative and, yeah. y- y- right, you know, Ted Boys yeah. and David Olson. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, I'm going to take a quick break right here. When we come back, I want to continue our discussion, and I've got some questions for you that, uh, uh, you know, some people have kind of come in on you for, um, that some of your statements they may not have agreed with, for example. So stay with us, okay? Great. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook. 
And when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. The Michelle Meow Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Our special guest on the phone has a new book out, The Once and Future Liberal. He's a professor of humanities at Columbia University in New York City. So we're talking about identity politics. And don't worry, yes, he is a Democrat and a liberal here on Progressive Voices. I'm not just talking to anybody who is critical of identity politics. Um, and there's some you know, chunks of, of uh, truth to that, that identity politics has certainly negatively impacted the liberal and democratic uh, campaign, if you will, in trying to, 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 to win positions of power. Um, Mark, you talk a lot about Reaganism or, or, you know, the Reagan era in the book, and you, you make a good point in that we do need to understand um, Reaganism and, the you know, kind of how it happened, what it meant to a lot of Americans, um, if we're to understand what's happening now. Uh, talk mm-hmm. to us why that is. Well, I guess for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that... Um I'll take the most important one, and that is that at the end of the 1970s, um, you know, I'm old enough to remember them quite well, there was a sense of complete deflation in the country. And there was a sense that social problems, uh, sorry, social programs weren't helping a lot of our problems. Cities were falling apart. New York was going bankrupt. Um, Vietnam was a, was a disaster. Uh, the economy was sinking after the oil embargo, and the country was in in the mood to hear something hopeful. And Ronald Reagan came along and said, "Guess what? It's morning in America. I don't find a malaise like Jimmy Carter says. I find a country that can do a lot. But here's the key: you've got to get government off your back." Right, that only if government gets off your back 
then uh, economic growth will come, you and your families will, uh, will flourish. And essentially the message was you are nothing but an individual and a member of you know, your, your family and so on. And um, it was an anti-political message. And at that moment, it was the time for liberals and the left to respond with a message that defended politics and defended what we can do through government. And a Reagan said there's no common vision apart from people going off and doing their stuff. And instead of responding with a message of solidarity and stressing the democratic we, we fell into these identity politics. And um, so now... Uh, we sort of come to, or to the end of the Reagan era, and neither the Republicans nor the Democrats are able to offer a vision of the future that's compelling and hopeful, and that's what we need to focus on. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, you know, some a couple of things, like I kept going back and forth as, as I was reading your book of agreeing and disagreeing, agreeing and disagreeing. Um, some of the things that you know I disagreed with, I, I felt very strongly about, was making sure that when we do talk about issues, that we are authentic and honest about the way that they impact people. Because, well, there are a lot of people here in this country who still don't have, you know, rights, or they're marginalized. And so, you, the more identities you take on, as I mentioned in the beginning, the more you start to feel, uh, you know. All uh, all those uh, shiny rights that people talk about, the equal rights, you know, chip away from you, and transgender being you know the most marginalized, and I would say black transgender women. Um, so one of the things like I wanted to ask you is just about uh, like you can't talk about immigration without being specific, you know, in terms of who that impacts. And, and a, a great sure. example of that is like you know Trump for example, uh, talking about immigration, how we need to build build a wall, and liberals, of course, being realistic about the fact that that will impact, you know, Mexicans and undocumented people and, and showing how that's actually, uh, there's a lot of racist um, uh, undertones to, to what he's trying to do. And even the, the travel ban, which you're hearing from, you know, judges that parts of it are unconstitutional and racist in, in a lot of ways. Sure. Uh, so how do we, how do, you know, I'm just trying to figure out, like, how do we, how do you have a unified nationalistic voice when it comes to these types of issues that you just can't ignore the fact that they do impact a certain group in our country that are deserving to be here? You know, as I said earlier, you know, you can't understand a lot of our problems and our issues without talking about identity in just the way you did. But when it comes to actually doing something about these issues, you need to gain power. And to do that, you need to talk about what we are. And we are a we, right? The only reason why we're outraged by the fact that, you know, right now uh, Trump has decided to talk transgender people right out of the military. These people are serving with honor. It's obscene, right? And why is it obscene? Because we are all citizens in this country and we deserve equal respect. If you don't talk about that we, if you don't say that, that there, is a, uh, there is something we all share, you can't make a claim on someone else. If you say that I belong to my group, you belong to your group, why should the person in that group care about your group? 
You can only make a claim on them and motivate them if you say, I share something with you, but you're cutting me out. Mm -hmm. And so you have to move away from the rhetoric of difference when you're involved in real, concrete institutional politics to get anything done. So um, that phrase we need to talk about, we need to question that phrase. Talk about where and when. When we're writing an article about a particular social problem, do we need to talk about race yet? Yes. When we're running for office someplace that's, you know, a white working class state and other issues are on their agenda, and we want to find a way of talking about what connects those people there with, you know, a black single mother in the south side of Chicago worried about her kid getting into a gang. We need to have an, an, a language or principles we articulate that say that so that that white working class person says, yeah, I accept that principle. And the woman in Chicago says, I accept that principle, right? So I'm urging liberals and progressives, especially the kind that would be listening to your show, to learn that, that you know, politics is not a speech act. By saying something, nothing happens. What you need to do is to focus on gaining power and saying what's focusing on what's necessary there, not one group against another, but a general vision for the country that will inspire people and get people to pull together. Well, that's just all you know. It, it it's like a it's like a recipe that I cannot I cannot. I can't cook or something. It's like a, a recipe that I'm like, this is too difficult for me because I don't have the ingredients or because the ingredients are not accessible to me. So, you know, in order to get into a position of power and in, in order to be likable and get people to vote for you, I mean, you need you need media, which you need money to buy advertising. You need money to campaign. You need money, period, and me you know, money is a sign of uh, economic power and power in this country. I mean, that's what went through my mind as I was reading your book. It's like we talk and focus so much on it because the system in itself to begin with is racist against other groups. And if we don't address that, which I think that's what Black Lives Matter is doing, and, and while people may argue that what they're doing is actually not doing us any good in what we're trying to do, I think you need like a movement like that um, that breaks the cycle of corruption or you know a lot of uh, democratic or I, I think politicians actually legislators who are financially dependent on corporate dollars and things like that I, we need that to change the broken criminal justice dis system and things like police brutality and uncovering the truth what, what about but the, that? But, the, but the only way you accomplish those things is by having power right and look, you've got a radio show. Yes. You've got, some, you've got some power right there. So rather than talking about your own experience for the entire half hour or hour and talking through your own identity, what if you just spend some time talking about this general problem? You've got to hate the Republicans. You've got to want to, you want, you have to want to crush these people, to wake up every morning, want to give Steve Bannon a really bad day. Because that's what it's going to take if you want something to happen and not just have a seminar about the structure of power in America. You have to fill yourself with enough anger and bile to actually do what's necessary to change things. And that means getting out behind your laptops and getting out there 
with Americans who are not part of your circle. Mm-hmm. Yes, that I agree with. And, and uh, you know, when the Patriot Prayer Guys, um, which is an organization that's all for quote-unquote free speech, they came to the Bay Area, um, and their group, you know, they attract the fringe alt-right groups and, and the white supremacists, neo-Nazi type guys, same kind of feeling or things that you would have seen at Charlottesville. Um, right. You know, the, I think that leaders in the city lost the narrative of being able to stand in solidarity with other communities who want to see Donald Trump go or are adversely affected by his current policies. I got a couple questions for you before I let you go, and, and, uh, and, and thank you for this very thoughtful conversation um, and answering my questions as they came up as I read your book. You know, if our basic principles or our national idea of Americanism is based on every man and woman is created equal, but our systems create inequities, uh, you know, how do, we, how do we find the education that's necessary for Americans to work harder to make it a more equitable society? So you say to work with other groups. Like, what kinds of things or what specific issues come to mind that could intersect us or connect us or, or create interconnectedness to where we're working towards the same goal? Well, I, I think to begin with, what you want to encourage people is to not think of, think of it in terms of groups that are getting together, this intersectional idea. Solidarity is we put aside those things to say we are a fighting force and we are crushing Republicans. We don't have to talk about what... Uh, what our differences are. Our motivation is we care about this country, and we care that the people in power are screwing over all sorts of people, including the people who are members of our groups. But it actually means being motivated to get out of yourself, to care about other issues. I mean, when is the last time I've heard a progressive talk about foreign policy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's important. I mean, it affects everything that we do in this country. But if everyone's just talking about what affects the L and what what affects the G and what affects the T and the Q, we'll, we'll get nowhere. So focus on the country and focus on um, on you know on party politics. Mm-hmm. Last question for you. I mentioned you know some it can feel um, almost impossible for a lot of people to to run for positions of power or to work on gaining power because we think we don't have the ingredients, as I had mentioned earlier. One of the main ingredients is money or capital. We don't have access to that. Uh, And if we are going to check privileges, which you had mentioned earlier, um, you know, white male has access to capital. And I'm here in San Francisco, and I'm close to a bunch of what you would even consider as libertarian, um, pretty wealthy, you know, white guys, right, who head or have uh, power in some of these global companies. Do you think that white America is ready, or not just white America, but but people who believe in this country or who would hear from someone like myself, do you think that they're ready to redirect some of that power and uh, resources to hopefully, you know, elect a more, much more diverse um, representation of power here in this country? Well, the thing to do is to go out and work on one of these campaigns and, you know, hit up donors. Sure. I mean, you know, if one of your listeners wants to go out to, to Virginia 
and work on the campaign that is Donica uh, runs, that would be a very practical thing to do. Go out there, make cold calls, try to raise money there, um, you know, go out and talk to people and win just one little seat. Just start there. Just win one little seat and then go to the next one and go to the next one. This is how the Republicans built their base. They did not build their base by doing what we do. And so we have to stop what we're doing and imitate them, which is you start at the bottom and you build up, and that's going to take time. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. Thanks so much for being here in the show. I lied. I had one last question, and that is, do you think that we can take back uh, power? And we, as in liberals and Democrats um, here in this country, is it possible to, to get a Donald Trump out of position and, and, and never see him again? Yeah, I can only hope, but, you know, politics is built on hope, you know, and if you convince yourself that nothing's going to change, nothing is. You know, it was not too long ago, you know, we had Barack Obama as president, and, you know, that was very encouraging, and we've had Bill Clinton before, Hillary won the popular vote, but it, it will mean not focusing on just people like Trump. It really means getting out to the state and local level and doing the heavy lifting, you know, in places where the Wi-Fi sucks, and you don't have a desire to take a picture of your dinner, and everyone's thanking God for that dinner when you're sitting in a diner, right? Yeah. Just get out there, meet those people, work in, a, work in a small district, and just, you know, put your shoulder to the wheel. Hey, Mark, thanks again for being on the program, and uh, thanks for, for your thoughts. I think, you know, conversations like these, whether we agree or not, if we're working towards the middle, there, that, there's change right there, right? I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me on. Mark Lilla, he's the author of The Once and Future Liberal. So if you get a chance, you can get a copy of that uh, you know, on your iPad or Amazon or whatever way you want to read it. It's also available in uh, you know, a real book if people are still buying real books. Uh, but, I, but I definitely would say get a copy because I enjoyed reading it. And like I said, whether I agreed or disagreed, some of these conversations we should be having as we learn where we're going to take the country next. Don't go away when we come back. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday, the Tuesday after Labor Day weekend. Hopefully everybody had a uh, nice, safe holiday weekend. Unfortunately, this morning we woke up to bad news in which a lot of us were anticipating the bad news in a lot of ways. And that is the announcement of DACA. Uh, so the president has officially uh, he's dismantling the program that we know as uh, a program that President Obama had put into place to protect undocumented young children who had immigrated here with their parents and given them a chance to go to school, to go to work. And so this impacts over 800,000 people. And here to speak with us on the matter um, is Diana Flores. Diana, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Michelle. And so just to be clear, you, are you with the San Francisco uh, immigration? I'm sorry. I'm going to screw it all up again. I got I to gotta, I gotta get the uh, organization right. Uh, 
Um, tell, tell us who you're with. Yeah, well, my current title is I'm the Director of Community Engagement and Organizing for the Lotus Street Community Services. And community and our organization is part of a network of organizations that in San Francisco composes the San Francisco Immigration Legal and Education Network known as Asafilus. So I'm also part of that group representing of the Lotus Street today. So I mentioned earlier that, yes, the president has officially ended DACA, which, um, you know, was a program that President Obama had put into place. This impacts about 800,000 people. You know, what, is, what does this mean? What does the end of DACA mean to uh, those impacted? Uh, well, first of all, we want to be very clear of is that even though there was a statement released today uh, more concretely from the White House, there's different ways in which this decision is going to roll out. And what we do know is that there's different deadlines coming up. Uh, in particular, I know that a lot of the service providers are going to be looking internally to contact the folks that in these past years they have supported in, in applying for the program and seeking protections under the program. Uh, and we want to be very clear and concise in how we understand the impacts of of this uh, announcement today. Uh, so we know that there is um, um, an ask uh, that we are being uh, tasked with, and that is to try to really measure out the timeline that we're dealing with. So there is uh, talks of six months, and, and this program is going to kind of space out. But we also understand that renewals are still being accepted until October 5th, and that even the program itself is looking until the end of March of next year. So I think that information uh, is going to be clarified from different allies and service providers as, we, as the weeks roll out. And the particular uh, avenue for folks to either renew their current uh, status or looking to other ways of being protected, I think folks are going to be looking for that in the coming weeks as well. Now, you know, the president had mentioned that he's giving the program six months, uh, and during those six months, he would like for Congress to do something about it, whether that's create legislation uh, that makes it into law, whatever that means, impacting DACA, or we should say Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Um, are we confident that Congress can get something done? We have been looking uh, to our representative officials to really step up and to really stand uh, beside uh, comprehensive and permanent solutions. So we know that even though it, the president is looking, uh, the appointed president is looking to, uh, to them for the solution, it is really up to the community to come forth with the recommendation uh, and uh, to really fight for what is going to be suited for us at this time. So there's definitely different bills uh, being discussed and had been discussed in the past before this announcement took, came out. Uh, and we really want to encourage Congress to not use any part, any section of our community as bargaining chips, but to really look into a, a full picture of solutions and to to look at the recommendations that are coming forward uh, for permanent solutions. In your opinion, um, did you, did, I mean, was it understandable where the president's coming from? Lots of people are calling his decision cruel and unnecessary. 
what w- what is your opinion? I mean, it, was it necessary for him to dismantle this program because of what he said? It needed to become law. And according to the 10 uh, attorney generals from the different states who had mentioned that the way that President Obama had enacted this program through an executive order was unconstitutional. What is your opinion? Uh, well, first, you know, there's a lot of language that we have worked around in these past five years and, and the time that DACA has been an uh, ongoing campaign. And some of that language that came, that we have fought uh, to change was used in today's memorandum. Right. Uh, we are talking about uh, the memorandum specifically describes uh, DACA recipients as illegal aliens. Uh, and there's a lot of moving backwards around the constitute, the around what was the impact of DACA. And we don't have to um, really look any further, but the recent studies uh, that the Center for, uh, for Progress in America just released I believe, uh, around the benefits of DACA. Uh, But what you are seeing is this regressive culture uh, that we have seen this not just uh, in terms of the rights that the immigrant community have fought. We have seen this in terms of the rights that the LGBT and trans community have fought for. We have seen this in the rights uh, of other uh, groups that we have fought for in this last 10 years. And we are seeing a regressive agenda, an agenda that continues to favor uh, a dying white supremacy, and that at this time we knew organizers understood that DACA was uh, threatened. We understood that there was this pressure amounting uh, due to the challenges uh, in, led by Texas, and we understood that that was something that we, need to, we needed to uh, assert pressure on the other end, right? Why to defend DACA? But I think in this particular moment, uh, there's an agenda that seems to be being championed in the White House that is not really reflective of of the constituents that it is is set to represent, and it's not reflective of what local state and local municipalities want to champion. Uh, The mayor just of San Francisco just wrapped up his press conference right now, and again, the, the ask is the same. Uh, we look for Congress for solutions. We look uh, not to go backwards, and we call this a, a moral and unjust decision. But at the same time, he, the president, has been making unjust and immoral decisions since he took office. And so we should come out to denounce not only the end of DACA as an immoral and unjust decision, but then of many progressive programs and many progressive rights and the cutting of many sources of funding that have stabilized our community in the past years, we should come out and call that out. So it's little—it's a little surprising, it's not surprising uh, how the announcement has been made, the language that has been associated with the announcement. Uh, it's not surprising that we're going back into the unconstitutionality of the process itself. But if it wasn't a constitutional process to begin, then we do have an opportunity right now to seek a more permanent way uh, to introduce some of the protections that were uh, found in DACA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. And what has been the response so far um, as far as like people you service and work with or your own community? Are people afraid or are people confused? I think this is the moment where we are asking our community to really assess 
what we value and uphold our values. Uh, any city that's a sanctuary city, uh, I think this is the time where they need to step up. And in San Francisco, we are definitely coming uh, to the forefront of reassuring that many of the progressive moves that we have made to uh, ensure that our residents feel safe, that we continue to, to uphold those protections and uphold those systems. Um, but a lot of folks are living in fear and have been living uh, with nightmares uh, the mo since the moment that we knew that Trump uh, became president. Uh, so we, we've been holding on to this fear for a while, uh, I think, of what it would look like for an attack for this particular community to come down. And I think it, what we are hearing from folks is that not only is there fear for the unknown, and mostly in the weeks that the announcement was yet to come out, there was fear of what it would look like, but we also have heard a lot of resilience, and we have understood that this has not been the first moment in our memory, in our history as organizers, in our history as communities, in which we have seen a backlash on immigrants. And we have seen um, the use of immigrants as a political platform. Uh, whether it's for rating stakes or not, we understand that we are in a moment in which history is on our side. And although we are afraid and although many people want to face this moment alone, I think there have been good lessons uh, at, to the benefits of coming as, out as a community to, to respond to this moment. And our offices, like many service providers, are receiving calls, are offering extended office hours, are looking again internally to the clients they provide to be the first folks that they are responding and clarifying uh, information for. Uh, because, again, a lot of our folks just need to be informed about the implications of this announcement and and, and some of them are looking for ways to be involved, and that's what we're seeing right now from our community. That's great. Michelle Miel, we're speaking with Diana Flores, and we're talking about the president's announcement of ending DACA, um, and that's the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, and this will affect about 800,000 people. And President Obama has uh, come out, former president, I should say. I mean, it's hard to say that he's not president anymore. <laughs> but he has he has publicly uh, denounced President Trump's move on this and basically called it cruel and self-defeating. Um, Diana, you know, you mentioned about people wanting to get involved. And we're seeing so many groups in various different cities do their own kind of organizing and protesting. The organizing and the protesting, this is incredibly important. I mean, it's it, we have to make a big deal out of this, right? Right, and what we are wanting to make sure folks do not forget is that although we are faced with a legislative fix in front of us with um, a strategy to apply pressure to our representatives and our local state officials, and uh, we have to remember that this, provision came out of demands that were articulated by a particular group of affected folks that didn't have a clear pathway, that didn't have a clear alignment or a clear endorsement from public officials to have their interests at hand. And so, you know, when DACA's campaign, when the campaign for DACA started, there wasn't a lot of alignment in terms of who should be afforded these protections. We want to make sure that folks moving forward are in unison with the 11 million undocumented folks 
that as we hold the protections that have safeguarded 800,000 of those folks, that we move forward with confidence knowing that it's going to require all of us to come to the table to really shape what's next. But also, uh, as you mentioned, this has been um, this victory of DACA, but also the moment that we're in to defend DACA, it's part of a move, it's part of movement work. And I know that in my family and in my personal experience, there's only so many of us that find the time to do movement work. There's only so many of us that think that the pol- political and that politics and that civic engagement is only for the folks that want to um, create change or have the capacity to. Right now, all of the people who have benefited from DACA and who have never stepped out in the streets, who have never stepped out to a public hearing, who have never come out forward, those are the people that need to come out now. Those are the folks that need to align themselves with the politics on the ground, and we need them to be in unison with the message that is going to come back. So my call to action is not just for the folks that know that they're, this is morally wrong and they should come and actually be able to engage uh, uh, protections that are thinking of our community and the, and the benefits of our community and the wellness of our community, but we, we really need folks that have cruised through this political moment and have said, you know, I'm going to let the change be in the hands of someone else. We need those people to come out. And the more that we put a face to who the doctor recipient has been, not just the brown community, not just the yellow community, right? We're talking about all communities that have a, an interest, that are stakeholders in this campaign. They need to come out now. And whatever the next leg looks like, we can all shape that together. But if we do not have DACA recipients come out of the shadows once again, I think we're going we're gonna to lose a great energy to this moment. Diana, I want to thank you so much for your time and for joining us and talking us through DACA and good luck to you and to all of us, and we're, we're in this fight together. Thank you, Michelle. Don't go away when we come back. The show continues right after this. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum, engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year... of California is the nation's leading public The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play, watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook, And when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. 
This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday. I uh, hope you enjoyed the program. We talked about identity politics and how it might be affecting the Democratic Party or the Liberal Party, if you will, and uh, our, our chances at success. Um, you know, like I said, there are some things I agree with, some things I disagree with. I think the biggest problem, in all honesty, is uh, a structure that is obviously broken from everything from our, you know, judicial, uh, executive, and in systems. And I and, and I'm not saying our government. Uh, I do believe in the in a, in the American democracy. But what I do think is broken is that some structure, some systems, uh, as far as like access to capital, how we get candidates out there, how they have access to market themselves, how people, you know, are restricted or limited from voting in certain states. Those are the types of systems that I'm talking about that's broken. And so I don't necessarily think that it's just identity politics. And then we talked about DACA and how the president has just announced today that he is ending the program that President Obama put into place. My feelings are, you know, let's call him cruel, let's call him these things, they, let's call him racist, but at the end of the day, I think this guy just doesn't care. I mean, he doesn't know what he's doing, and he just doesn't care. Doesn't care about the country, doesn't care about the position, he just doesn't care about being a leader. And so I'm hoping that the next steps, uh, I, I hope that we don't lose too much before he is, is uh, out of office. I'll just put it that way. We're going to end the show. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, right here on Progressive Voices Network. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. 
and that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders.